think what the European Union is worried about is that Hungary sets an example of a successful challenger to its way of life. And that's why it has so systematically sought to isolate and marginalize the Hungarian government. And that's going to be a major battle uh, in the years ahead. That's going to continue for some time to come. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike and joining me is Jonathan Astro. How are you? Uh, yep, it's very stern of you to ask me how I am, and I appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm well, Ricky. I'm I'm actually a little intimidated. Tonight's guest is he's the, he's the real deal, so I'm I'm, you know, it, it's uh, I'll keep it under control though. Yes, I'll uh, do my best. We're talking to Frank Peretti tonight, uh, and he he studies fear, so I feel like he's <laughs> well across what I'm feeling. Yeah, he'll be able to smell the fear coming from us. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And with that, on with the show. Frank Faridi is Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent. He's a sociologist and a social commentator on, wa- on a wide range of subjects, including fear, borders, populism, and the socialization of children. He's written for Spiked, The Australian, The Guardian, The New Scientist, The Independent, The Financial Times, The Daily Telegraph, The Express, The Daily Mail, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. He's written over 20 books, the most recent being 100 Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Socialization, Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries, and How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. Frank, welcome to The New Flesh. Pleasure. So, Frank, uh, we've got you on the show to talk about all of the most consequential issues facing us today, the war in Ukraine, Hungary's election and moral courage, which is why we have to know, what did you think of uh, Will Smith uh, slapping Chris Rock for his mean joke at the Oscars? Well, you know, uh, I think given the, uh, the, the tedious atmosphere surrounding the Oscars, at least there was a bit of relief, uh, a, a teeny moment of excitement, of interest. Uh, and I just think that, you know, it's a, a kind of failing on the part of Will Smith. Uh, he's, but he's an actor. He's not a philosopher or a theologian or a religious leader. And therefore, I don't think there's any need to dwell on it too much because his behavior uh, is not really all that relevant for understanding the wider cultural issues and problems that were raised at the Oscars. I was much more worried about the tedious virtue signaling that was going on there. Uh, I was kind of much more worried about this uh, uh, very kind of infantile way that actors and actresses and directors assume the role of moral mentors to our society, which, you know, is just really silly. Is it fair to say that it's become absolutely unwatchable? Certainly unwatchable for me. Uh, As a sociologist, I've got no choice but to watch all these programs. The horrors. (laughs) I can tell in advance, you know, the plot line, you know, typically what happens is that... uh, the white heterosexual man is uh, cast into the role of the villain or the idiot. They're the insensitive ones. Young children are always put into the role being much more uh, astute and much more able to read the room than their parents can. Uh, Different kinds of minorities are seen as kind of on the top of the moral hierarchy of these shows. And therefore, you got this kind of caricatured world where what matters is the political signals you send out rather than the aesthetic uh, sort of aspects of, of that program. Yes. Well, well. before we pivot onto much more consequential matters, I did have a, a question on, on sort of art that we might as well get out of the way now before we move on. Uh, no doubt many of our listeners watch a lot of Netflix uh, and maybe without much thought uh, to the not so subtle, subtle agenda of the uh, of the shows they create. And I was just fascinated to hear, hear how you would describe the worldview 
being pushed by this company. Um, I, I don't think we'll ever see Netflix make the Deer Hunter, for example. Uh, absolutely not. I think Netflix uh, is dominated by what I call in my last book, uh, an ideology without a name. And that ideology synthesizes two important elements. One is social engineering, which is a kind of paternalistic impulse to dictate the way we lead our lives and to intervene in our private and personal affairs, very medicalized, very therapeutic. And the other aspect is identity politics, where uh, people's uh, uh, behavior uh, is very much uh, judged and assessed on the basis of an identity po political script. And what, what Netflix does, it kind of brings that together. And it even does that in its historical dramas. So in historical dramas, it anachronistically looks at people in the Victorian era or even going back to the 12th, 13th century. And, you know, sort of, you know, typically there will be really, really super strong women in it. Uh, typically there would be uh, a certain uh, sort of anti-heterosexual uh, element introduced into that. Typically there would be uh, sort of uh, ethnic minority faces, even in, in places like Sweden, which uh, you know, were obviously just Swedish, you know, in a very kind of homogeneous kind of way. So there's that kind of attempt to recreate a world entirely on the lines of uh, social engineering and identity politics. And that's the kind of mix that they kind of uh, signal to us. Mm, well, before we uh, get get fully into the culture wars, uh, you've made a recent trip to, the, to, to Ukraine. Can you tell us about your experience there? Well, it was very interesting. I, I really wanted to see things for myself because, as you know, whenever there's a war, you just find there's so much propaganda, you can't really believe what you hear. And I just wanted to talk to people. I mean, my mission was to talk to ordinary people, see how they perceived it. And I talked to a lot of refugees, and, and it was interesting to find out there were different kinds of refugees. Some who said they will never go back to the Ukraine uh, because they're looking for a new life. So they wanted to go to Spain or Italy or Scandinavia. Others were much more uh, invested in their home country and you know, sort of saw it as a kind of temporary measure before they headed back to the Ukraine. But there was a kind of, I was quite surprised by the relaxed manner with which people uh, engage with the war, which I think is probably the case in many uh, sort of uh, military conflicts, often from the outside. You know, we don't really understand that people need to survive. I mean, you need to survive. You're not gonna make a drama out of a crisis. You're just gonna carry on. And I saw young couples kissing in cafes, people fishing in the river, you know, sort of, young kids hanging out on the corner. When the air raid sirens went, uh, it was mainly the old people that kind of scuttered down into the cellars. The, the rest were kind of carried on, carry, carrying on with life. I, I know that it's very different experiences in some of the, de in the details and timing, but you know, compared to some of your uh, history uh, with you know, um, getting away from Soviet Hungary, uh, did, did, did you see any parallels there at all? Very much so. In fact, that's why I was so keen to go in there, because I remembered what a defining moment in my life it was when we crossed the border from Hungary to Austria. Uh, and I also remembered the combination of fear and uh, disappointment that we had to leave, but also the excitement of a new world, you know, sort of becoming uh, available to us. And I think the Ukrainians were very similar. Uh, and uh, just seeing the uh, the kind of this a bit of the destruction just seeing the way that people were managing their affairs really reminded me it was like a 
a reality check for me tells you that when you even though you think that this is finished now that those kinds of events are not going to be part of our life that's history nevertheless it's always lurking in the background and that at the end of the day we have to be prepared for you know these kind of worst case scenarios intruding in our lives for sure. There's there's almost too much information about this conflict to wade through already, and it's it's getting harder to make sense of it all. Not to be too reductionist, but who do you think is winning this war, and, and, and what does winning even look like in this situation? Well, you have to remember that the war is not simply between the Ukraine and Russia. So as far as I'm concerned, Russia has already lost the war because it's lost the totally its moral high ground, and in particular, because of the poor performance of its troops, particularly its infantry. A lot of uh, it, a lot, a lot of the non-Russian parts of the Russian Federation who are already, you know, not particularly happy with being part of Russia are going to draw the conclusion: well, if that's the case, if they can't even get their act together in the Ukraine, uh, that will incentivize them to, you know, move away from it. And I think Russia itself might exp- experience a kind of fragmentary tendency of kind of falling apart because of what had happened, not tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, but fairly soon and you already saw evidence of this before the war in the upheavals in Kazakhstan and and elsewhere so that's the first thing I, I think Ukraine is winning the war at the moment but it might lose the war just simply because uh, it hasn't yet faced Russia's uh, full military air power uh, but it doesn't really this the trouble is is that whatever whoever wins the war it's gonna come to a bad end it's nothing good will come out of this because so much destruction has been uh, kind of you know sort of created within the Ukraine, and the economy has been so, so uh, sort of turned upside down that it's going to take decades and decades and decades to rebuild that kind of country. Finally, I think we have to remember that even Australia or England, where I'm living at the moment, are going to feel the impact of this because the economic costs of sanctions, the economic costs of the wars, the shortages, the are going to create a, a very competitive economic war-like situation where people will be competing for for very scarce resources. That's already happening in quite a big way. And that's going to uh, call into question the pre-existing economic calculations that our societies you know, live by. Uh, well, it seems that the popular idea for decades now has been that we're all part of this global village and that borders are at best anachronistic and at worst outright racist. Is it possible that Russia's aggression has reminded some globalist elites that not everyone believes in this kind of Silicon Valley borderless utopia run by technocrats? I think so, but that that already kicked in in the pandemic because what happened in the pandemic was the realization that if you wanted to look after your people, you're not going to go to the World Health Organization to do the right thing. You're not going to have international institutions watching your back. You're going to rely on your government to get you those vaccines and the competition for vaccines and various other health-related resources indicated that suddenly the nation-state assumed a singular importance. And despite all this talk of global cooperation and that we now live in a borderless globalized world, suddenly the borders became really, really crucial. And I think what began to kick in during the pandemic acquired a much greater momentum in the war. And now today, with the emergence of a, a proper military war in the middle of Europe, you can see that we're now moving into a scenario where the nation state is going to become much more significant 
uh, in the calculations that people and individuals make. And what I do worry about, you know, because even though I'm a big believer in national sovereignty and I think the nation state is a legitimate institution for conducting and managing people's affairs, what I'm really worried about is that if the rules of the game are unra unraveling as they are globally, you can move into a situation where suddenly uh, anything can happen. You know, all you need is a, a few bad choices being made by governments, a reaction to that, and you end up in a situation that can resemble the decades leading up to the First World War in the early part of the 20th century. I'm not saying that's going to happen or, you know, it, there needs to be a repetition of a, a global war, but you can see that whenever uh, global stability unravels, you know, you, you can have the most unexpected uh, kind of conflicts kind of coming to the fore. We've talked about nation states already, and I think this is a probably a a fine pivot to the Hungary uh, election, which is now complete, uh, and it looks like uh, Viktor Orban has won a thumping uh, victory. Uh, am I correct in saying he's won a fourth consecutive term, but a fifth overall term? Yes, uh, because there was a break between okay. the first and second, yeah. So how do you see this result? And is this the beginning uh, or the end for uh, Viktor Orban and his movement? Well, it was a very interesting uh, uh, election because I've talked to a lot of people that are close to the Orban government. And they were very, very uh, wary and scared about making predictions. You know, some of them even encountered the possibility that they might lose. Most of them would thought they might get a very narrow majority of two or three percent. And I think they were just as shocked as m most people that the majority increased and, and they had a historic landslide victory coming out of the situation. Myself, I wasn't that surprised because uh, they were very much blessed by the fact that the opposition, the coalition of six parties, were singularly inept. You know, they were very unprincipled. You know, when you have a situation, when you have people from the far right and the far left uniting, you know that they're not interested in politics or they have no political ideals. All they're interested in is just getting rid of the government. And I think they, they couldn't really inspire people. And I've talked to a lot of people who were disappointed by the Orban government. But when you then ask them after the conversation, well, who are you going to vote for? They would often say, we have no choice but to write for, vote for Orban because at least he he's reliable in terms of defending Hungary's interests. So. Uh, it was very interesting in that sense, but also I think uh, what Orban managed to do was to, uh, because he's very different than any other prime minister in existence at the moment, although he's very pragmatic, he also has very strong ideals that he wants to promote uh, as part of Hung Hungary's heritage. What he's managed to do, and this is something is not understood at all by f foreign media observers, is to con almost construct a, a block of people around the traditional ideals and values, principally conservative values of, of Hungarian society. And I would say there's a, a 40% of the population have signed up to this, and this is something they believe in and they, and they kind of feel strongly about. I mean, you've got a 40% base of support that uh, are inspired by what you're doing it's very difficult to, to lose an election yeah for sure it was it was uh, a, a decisive victory and the way it was reported here in australia you know uh i've got some headlines for you here this is from the sydney morning herald 
Putin ally Orban claims victory in Hungary election. This is another one from the City Morning Herald. Hungary's illiberal Viktor Orban seeks re-election in the shadow of Putin's war. Well, there's two mentions of Putin in there, basically. Uh, And the third one, this is from the ABC, our national broadcaster. Long-time Vladimir Putin ally Viktor Orban declares huge victory in fourth term in the Hungary election. Now, I'm fascinated by these headlines from our, our press because Hungary uh, hasn't garnered a, a much press. So whatever there is has obviously sticks out. So what do you make of this kind of coverage of, of Orban's victory? Well, this is the new globalist narrative that's uh, directed at Hungary because what it aims to do is to uh, create the impression that uh, Orban is Putin's puppet. And they're trying to create this situation whereby the two become indistinguishable as a way of uh, morally uh, sort of degrading and delegitimating the election. So that's that narrative uh, of being pro-Russian and pro-Putin actually uh, overlooks the fact that the Hungarian government uh, is committed to a real politic, which is basically that Hungary's independence is its prime objective and its, its security is what it's mainly concerned about. And given the fact that it doesn't want to get caught in the war between Ukraine and Russia, because it will pay the price, you know, sort of more than anybody else, given the fact that Hungary has been invaded by Russia on two critical occasions in recent times, it's an understandable response. And people often talk about Orban being Putin's friend. He's not Putin's friend. They have a diplomatic, real political relationship with, 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 with each other. So there's, so there's that narrative to, to kind of um, delegitimate, delegitimate Orban. But the other narrative that the media uses is to suggest that Hungarian people are really thick and stupid and they were taken in by the propaganda. And this is the argument that's used by the Hungarian opposition and by the European Union that somehow uh, Hungarian people haven't got the intellectual resources. They, they believe everything they see on television and they just go out like sheep and vote for Orban, not realizing that people are, you know, like anywhere else, are able to uh, critically assess what they see on television. They don't believe what they see necessarily. Often they have very strong reservations about the government in, in Hungary, as they do in any part of the world. But nevertheless, having uh, have those reservations, they still decide that on balance, this is the best choice for, for their society. Mm. Well, once again, there, there have been claims from the opposition and some Western media outlets that this was not a fair election. Do you see parallels with the response to uh, populist movements that that drove President Trump's victory in Brexit? I think there is. I think the idea that uh, it's not fair, you know, it's a bit like when children fight and the loser says, you know, the fight wasn't fair, you know, because you lost. You know, nobody, not even the uh, the fierce uh, NGOs, opponents of Hungary have argued that it wasn't a free election because uh, even the opposition uh, acknowledges that the vast majority of Hungarians voted for Orban. You know, that's that's the reality. And there wasn't people with gun at their heads because we know that in many constituencies, Orban's party lost. It was, it was a completely free election. Now, fair basically means that they had greater access to media resources. They had, you know, more posters and all the rest of that. But, you know, that's politics. I mean, I can give you many, many examples here in Britain or France where elections are equally not fair, where you have, uh, a small number of people having a press monopoly and where their message gets a disproportionate amount of attention compared to the other party's message. So in that sense, I think there's a double standard that's been introduced here, which, which is continually being pumped out because 
they cannot accept the fact, just as with Brexit, that ordinary people, when push comes to shove, will reject the kind of European Union or the American State Department kind of globalist kind of uh, politics and, and, and want to have a much more populist uh, world uh, that is of their own making. So that's something they cannot accept. And that's why they cannot help but have these narratives of delegitimation always being hurled at their opponents. But this has been a popular idea for quite some time now that 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 people in any all across the West they they just don't get it you know that that that, that they what they really need and you see this more frighteningly from you know the center left like when you when you it's when you see it you can't unsee it this idea that you know we're in charge and anything that we don't we don't uh, want to happen is because uh, a bunch of dummies uh, did it. Yeah, I mean, this is the historical anti-democratic argument that people are really unreliable because they cannot deal with complex issues. People are, are very easily swayed by demagogues or by the media or by advertising. And there's a number of stock arguments that are used to suggest that at the end of the day, decision making should be uh, restricted to a relatively small number of people who are really well educated. They got PhD degrees in social sciences and everybody else has, has, has got to be totally ignored. And that argument has really become very, very powerful in the recent period. And it was used to devalue Trump's election. You know, the deplorables behaved in a deplorable kind of way. The Brexit vote was seen as a, as a, as a kind of acclamation for, for stupid people, essentially. And same thing now in Hungary. And I think we have to remember that these anti-democratic arguments go back to the very beginning of time when the Greeks invented democracy, because even at that time, the demagogue was seen as an argument against uh, democracy. And whenever you hear demagogues being uh, sort of blamed for the result of an election, what, the, what is really being said is I couldn't argue as well as that other guy. You know, I didn't have the arguments, nor did I have the sense of humor or the personality. So they're demagogues. And that kind of uh, uh, you know, delegit delegit delegitimates them from having a proper role in the whole business. Yes, or now it's Russia. They use Russia as as the, as the next sort of shadow villain. Uh, as it was a cyber war, it was Cambridge Analytica. It was something, anything, but people went in and voted for it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm really, you know, I mean, I, have, I I still have a residue of prejudice against Russia just because of 1956 and the crushing of the Hungarian Revolution. So I remember that very, very strongly. Uh, but having said that, it's very clear that. The people of Russia are like the people of Australia. They're no better or, or no worse. And there's a danger of creating this uh, evil empire 2.0 uh, because it's very easy to basically uh, pretend that you're fighting uh, the same enemy as you fought in the Cold War. Because you have to remember that from the point of view of uh, a lot of people, the Cold War was the high point of their notion of what liberalism was. You know, that was the point at which we were on the good side. We were the side of freedom and they were the side of totalitarianism and therefore at that point in time western political parties became very very lazy they didn't have to renew their ideals they could just live off the fact that they looked much better than the enemy and they would get support and that's more or less what's being constructed today this attempt to almost uh, reframe the kremlin of today as as merely the latest version of the kremlin of of the high point of the cold war in the 1950s so we've you we've said that uh, people the people of Hungary uh, know what they're doing and they weren't 
necessarily duped by anyone. Now, do you feel that, because I read those headlines out before and I feel like what's missing is from, especially from an Australian perspective and, and maybe some other countries, uh, the US and whatever, I, f- I feel like there's a genuine uh, ignorance of the sense of history from, from that region. Now, it, I, 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 uh, my mother-in-law uh, told me a, a shocking story. I'm sure you have a very similar one of her flight from Hungary. Uh, and basically it was, um, you know, she did, her, her brother moved to America and, you know, managed to sort of somehow get her, get her a ticket out years later, many years later after he was set up and she was in a plane and like terrified the plane was going to fly back. And she didn't know that she was safe until an, a, 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 what they used to be called a hostess came to her and said, would you like a Coca-Cola? in the middle of the in the middle of the ocean and it was the most moving story i'd ever heard and coming from such a uh, a backwater place like australia hearing such a shocking real story do you do you feel like this this kind of sense of history of 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 not just that but everything that's come before is is what's not being considered when uh, in in this in these consider in these this this matter i think that's very 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 true there's a profound sense of historical amnesia in the west it's almost as if everything that has happened before is the past. And we, we like to kind of draw a line between the past and the present. We are very presentist, intellectual and, and moral outlook at the moment. And they, we just don't take into account the uh, experiences that other societies have gone through. And in particular, we don't understand that in large, large parts of the former Soviet empire, there is still a, a powerful sense of insecurity. Uh, about the future, people sometimes feel that they're living on borrowed time. They, they're really good. They're really happy that you know the regime had changed, but they're aware of the fact that bad things can suddenly come to the fore, totally unannounced. And I think that sensibility uh, ensures that the reaction and the response of the people in large part of Central East Europe and further east is to some extent very very different than the way that, for example, Australians or or uh, English people live. Which is why it's often very sad that when I read newspaper articles or or listen to the media, they have no understanding of the societies that they're describing. Because what you do is you project onto Hungary or Romania or the Baltic states your your values, your attitudes. And whenever you go there, you look for them and you're trying to rediscover yourself through those kinds of experiences. In a recent article from Pink News titled Queer Africans Fleeing Ukraine Face Grave Danger Even After Reaching So-Called Safe Countries, uh, the author makes the claim that uh, racial and gender-based minorities face verbal and physical attacks if they flee to Hungary, Poland or Romania. And there seems to be this perception out there that Hungary is a hateful racist and and, and, and homophobic country. Given that Hungary's culture is rooted in Christianity, uh, you know, a religion that teaches to love thy neighbour, turn the other cheek, and uh, that those who are without sin cast the first stone, etc. Is this perception accurate? Well, I mean, every country has got problems of some sort. That, that, there is no doubt about it. You know, whether it's, you're talking about Australia or England or Hungary. I think that a lot of the uh, accusations made against Hungarian societies are caricatures or, or false. So, for example, if you go to Budapest, you know, Budapest has got a vibrant gay scene, you know, in the evenings. And uh, there's, there's no need for protecting uh, uh, gay people, you know, homosexuals within Budapest society, because they're totally accepted. The Hungarian 
philosophy is, is that what you do in, in your bedroom is your own business. You know, that's, you know, you've got every right to make your choices. You don't necessarily have the right to impose your values on other people, on the rest of society. So that's why, for example, the government was, is not very keen on the kind of sex education that you have in Australia or in Britain, which, which kind of promotes certain values that uh, target what's called heteronormativity. You know, often the accusation is made that Hungary is uniquely anti-Semitic, yet Budapest and Hungary has got one of the richest Jewish culture in Europe. And Jews that go to Hungary make the point that they feel far safer there than they do in London or Paris or in Brussels. You know, when, you, uh, when, you, when you visit a, a Jewish restaurant in Budapest, there are no policemen outside. There's no need for there to be security. Whereas if you go to Brussels or Paris, you, know, you will always have you know, policemen standing around because they know that they often are often attacked. So there's a, and I remember my wife telling me uh, as we were walking the street, there's all these posters around. It was Jewish Culture Week. And she made the point that she was fascinated by the fact that there wasn't a single graffiti on it. Whereas in London, it would have been, you know, all kinds of graffitis would have been put on, you know, Jews get out or Palestine or whatever. None of that, you know, none of that occurred. Uh, so, you know, I think that there are problems, you know, you know prejudice is part of our life. Uh, Hung Hungarians are not angels. You know, they have their uh, likes and their dislikes. But uh, I, would, I would say that on balance, it's one of the safest, secure, and in many respects, tolerant society for people that are not like the, the, the majority. There isn't a, a kind of a, an ethos that we've got to target them. Uh, just because there's a, a strong sense of privacy that you are who you are and you get on with your life and I'll get on with my life and uh, we'll come together at election time when we vote. But otherwise, I think it's, it's a complete caricature, which is not to say that Hungarians don't, don't, have, don't have a lot of pride in being Hungarian. Uh, their patriotism is very strong, but their patriotism doesn't uh, mean that they, they're demeaning other people. That's because they think very highly of Hungarian culture does not mean that they think very low of other people's way of life. Now, for a small country, relatively small country, it, it seems to occupy the imagination of the elites in the European Union quite a bit. Um, now, you've written about fear. What is the EU afraid of in the case of Hungary? Are they, are they worried that there's going to be some kind of domino effect in terms of conservative values? I think they really are worried about the fact that uh, unlike other countries in Europe, Hungary doesn't just simply criticize the European Union, it offers a, a set of counter values to the uh, outlook of the European Union bureaucracy. So given the fact that you know, Hungary has got a strong sense of history, it's got a very strong sense of uh, Christianity, a very strong sense of a cultural alternative, the European Union regards that as, a, as in some sense, a challenge to its outlook. And what it's also worried about is that a lot of people in Europe think in ways that are very, very similar, but they haven't got a voice to express that. So I, I, I go to Italy quite a lot. I usually spend about two, three months a year there. And where I live in Lombardy, people's attitudes uh, towards uh, the European Union are pretty much the same as, as, as pro-Brexit people in England but they don't get a chance to express that, express that in a systematic political way. You have very similar attitudes in, in France and, and in a number of other places. And I think what the European Union is worried about is that Hungary sets an example of a successful challenger 
to its way of life. And that's why it has so systematically sought to isolate and marginalize the Hungarian government. And that's going to be a major battle uh, in the years ahead. That's going to continue for some time to come. Well, do you think that the European Union is, is, is trying to create a kind of monoculture? And, and furthermore, have they been captured by, by what, what we'd call wokeness, do you think? I think the European Union is committed to a federalist project that, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, denies the, uh, the status of the nation state as being of primary importance. It wants to reduce them to secondary importance. It uses what you call woke culture very pragmatically. Most of the people that run the European Union are what I call technocrats and social engineers. But it's realized that in order to gain a degree of legitimacy, it's got to find some issues. So it kind of uh, uses the environment and, and uh, global warming as, as one of its issues as a way of trying to get recognition and, and support amongst the young. And it uses identity politics as a way of uh, distinguishing itself as being somehow progressive and, and enlightened in a way that other people aren't. And it goes back to the point I was making earlier on, in that the European Union, uh, like many other Western governments, synthesizes its social engineering ambitions with identity politics. And that's why you will find that it's given so much prominence in recent years to the issue of gender neutrality. Why give so much uh, emphasis on what's called diversity? In fact, I often make the point when I debate them that you believe in diversity for everything except for the diversity of nations within the European Union. That's the one diversity they don't particularly like. Interestingly, putting the politics aside of, 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 of Hungary, I'm in awe of the steadfastness, commitment and intellectual grunt of the Hungarian figures that we see in the Western media. There's, uh, oh God, I, I should have pronounced... Frank, you're gonna to have to help me say his name. Peter Sicciato, uh, the um, Ciarto, yes, Ciarto. Yeah. I'm very sorry. Uh, and the incoming president, Catalan Novak. Um, and there's another guy we see all the time, a bald guy. And uh, they've had to endure hostile interviews for years, in which like laptop class elites just pummel them about Hungary's conservative ideas in that really patronising sort of BBC uh, uh, cadence. Should should people advocating for common sense, who I think is all of us, uh, borrow from their tactics a little bit? Do you think that they've been successful in winning hearts and minds in this way? It's a very difficult question to answer. I'm not really sure. I, I think that they have a very difficult job uh, because there's going to be uh, no tolerance, not even an inch uh, for anything that they might do. Uh, some of them are have been quite effective. Uh, you have to realize that when you're subjected to such kind of one-sided hostility, propaganda from interviewers, you got to either learn to repose the question so you're not kind of being forced into the corner, or alternatively use humor and, uh, or, and, 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 and just refuse to play the role that's assigned to you. So you got to be, you got to say to yourself, I'm going to be murdered by these people when I enter the studio. I know that in advance. So I just have to almost wear a mask and learn to live with it without losing my cool. I mean, that's basically what, what you've got to do. I could not do that. I mean, I would just strike out, you know, sort of, uh, and, uh, and lash out just because of my personality. So I'm very, I'm very proud of their 
capacity to to kind of be humble under those kind of cir circumstances. And uh, the good thing is, is that some of the new generation of politicians, such as our the new president, for example, or the or the justice minister, uh, who's uh, this woman called Judith Warga, are extremely accomplished. They speak six, seven languages, and they are very, very uh, bright, and they can react and respond to issues, and they, and they give as good as they get. So that's all you can ask them. It's cold. <laughs> Do you think that the, uh, the 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 COVID pandemic has accelerated these cultural shifts that we're that we're seeing? Yes, and yes, but also what the COVID experience did was to um, interweave the cultural issues into the medical ones. So what we're seeing since the pandemic is, on the one hand, the uh, politicization of public health, and on the other hand, the medicalization of politics. They kind of run in parallel with each other, and what you see that. You know, so you know, kind of people's uh, cultural attitudes almost imperceptibly becomes uh, linked to a reaction, a particular kind of reaction to the pandemic. So in, in the case of uh, Britain and uh, America, you've got a lot of people that have become committed to what I call a lockdown lifestyle, where they actually uh, loved sitting in their digital bedrooms and not having to face people, you know, face to face anymore and where they complain about the fact that people like me aren't wearing masks or not keeping our social distance. And I think you get the impression sometimes they would like this lockdown phenomenon to go on forever because, you know, it's very comfortable for them. And the, and the kind of people that react that kind of a way are often the same kind of people that are extremely woke on a number of other kind of issues. So there's a kind of uh, coming together of pre-existing cultural attitudes with this impulse to be, you know transform yourself from a citizen into a patient yeah well i've been i've been quite terrified uh by how governments are now they're able to uh enact policies based on our safety and and based on uh it, it, it's for your own good you know uh as someone who's who's written extensively about fear uh, what do you think about the fear campaign and the public's reaction to those early days of the pandemic, were you surprised at all? Well, not at all. I mean, you could see the uh, the fact that all that the pandemic did was to crystallize pre-existing trends. I mean, all those attitudes were were, were there, you know, in the previous twenty decades, sorry, uh, twenty years. And what happened was that in the pandemics, they just really came to the surface, so that the uh, the kind of fear of uh, but everything, uh, the whole idea of always expecting the worst, all those things became extremely powerful at that time. And um, so it basically meant that uh, by the time the lockdown came, there was uh, a demand. But the interesting thing was the demand for lockdown didn't always come from the people. Uh, I know, for example, that in the case of Britain, the government actually wanted to slow down the drive to lockdown. But the media hysteria was so powerful. You know, every time somebody dies, you're responsible for that. But the idea that every time a patient dies in a hospital, it becomes seen as, a, as, a, as, a, as the outcome of governmental incompetence was too much to bear for the Johnson government. So they just basically caved in on the media pressure. And I think once you have that, then you have the, the, the fear element uh, becoming unrestrained just because you've opened up all the doors. So it's a very kind of complicated situation uh, that basically meant that society became divided along the lines of 
whether you thought this was the end of the world as you know it, or whether you just thought this was a health problem you know, that we had to deal with. Well, when the government did decide, the UK government did did decide to go all in, uh, and then they the nudge units got to work on on uh, on their campaigns, uh, which is some of the ads we've all seen of you know look into her eyes and know that you're going to kill her or so whatever the creepy stuff they wrote was. So we'd have to say that the government pulled off some of the most spectacularly effective fear based tactics. Um, in order to control the populace ever, right? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was very effective in the sense that people became wary and they began to uh, adopt uh, risk-averse behaviours on their own account. And that sensibility is still in place, uh, even though there is no need now for that. And it's interesting that, for example, in Britain, the government got rid of all the rules but you get constant demands on the BBC and elsewhere, you know, isn't this irresponsible? Shouldn't we be wearing masks? Every single day, that kind of demand to be regulated and managed and controlled is still there. And it's uh, quite a visible and quite a, quite a vociferous section of society who's behind that. And very often you get the impression that uh, we now live in a moral world where people who are uh, wearing masks and there's still a minority of people that do that are accorded a, cer- a certain amount of virtue as against people like me who are seen as being principally irresponsible. So you, you don't want to wear that mask while you're driving around by yourself in your car? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes when I, when, I, when I get up in the morning and I don't look really good, I think people wear the mask. Of course, but Frank, of course, when they say, oh, we should be wearing masks, what they're really saying is they want you to wear a mask. They're, say- they're, they're not saying, because you go, oh, you can wear a mask. That's fine. Mask up. They're like, no, no, no. I mean, you and everyone, not just me. That's what they're really saying, isn't it? It's about control. It's about control, but it's also about uh, kind of creating a new world where uh, that kind of what I call a sort of psychic distance between people becomes uh, more rigid. And it's also, you know, to some extent, a fear of human interaction. And you get that. So it's interesting that in the academic world, uh, at universities, I don't know about Australia, but in Britain, there are still many universities that don't have face-to-face teaching. And where you, and, and, but they don't say, oh, we don't have face-to-face teaching. But they also say that, that what they call blended learning or digital interaction is even better for many students than when you're sitting in the classroom and they kind of turn a, a problem into a virtue. So you have a situation where mask wearing, blended learning, you know, working out of home are accorded this kind of status, which is superior to what we did beforehand. And they call this the new normal. And, and what they call the new normal is actually, a, a, to me, a, a world of, uh, where, where our humanity is kept under control, where our ability to be spontaneous and interact with each other is intensely regulated. And for them, that's, that's good, because uh, in their eyes, what perhaps you and I might see as freedom in its mundane, everyday aspect is a luxury that they're not prepared to countenance. For them, freedom is a, a second-order principle that's far less significant and far less important than their safety or their security. Mm, it's interesting what you just said then about status, like, and it only really just clicked 
to me just then is that um, p- people that that can afford to be in a profession where they they're sitting at home on a laptop they they now have this status of quite visible status against someone who's maybe more working class or uh, you know works as a as a courier or something like that or or is delivering your food via Uber Eats. I'd like to pivot maybe back to to some woke issues where it's, we kind of started our conversation. Um, I'm fascinated to understand where woke has come from. Not not so much the word, which which seems to be a pretty inadequate term. I'm sure you'd agree, but uh, but the ideals that underpin it. Uh, you've stated that it's a, it's a synthesis of two separate forces. Can you explain this to us? Well, to make a long story short, it's very much a result of the. Uh end of ide- different ideologies in the late 70s when you you know marxism disintegrated where uh, christian democracy lost its appeal in europe where liberalism mutated into something that no longer bore any relationship to classical liberalism and where conservatism went to sleep you know in a, in a kind of uh, lost its way and, and and lost the capacity to enthuse and to regenerate itself and i think at that point what you have is the, you know, there's new kind of uh, movements coming to the uh, to the surface, lifestyle movements, everything from environmentalism to vegetarianism, you know, to a whole lot of, you know, sort of uh, identity groups coming to the fore. And at that point in time, they were very much in the margins of public life. But because of the absence of any other alternatives, they gradually uh, acquired momentum between higher education. And their uh, sort of hostility to culture began to gain momentum. And the reason why it gained momentum, uh, and the reason why it, it's now so powerful, is because in Australia or England, America, the pre-existing political and cultural establishment lost their own belief in their traditional values. You know, they don't. For them, the old Australia was something that was they regarded as best left behind. And throughout the West. The, the new uh, generation of elites and establishments across the board, even in business, began to distance themselves from, you know, sort of what their ancestors uh, took as normal and self-evident. And I think under those circumstances, you had a situation where what we call wokeness now began to become institu- institutionalized, first in universities and, and institutions of culture, but then gradually it moved into uh, the public sector and it captured uh, business. And I remember, uh, because I made this point, because I, I often, when I argue about these things with people, they always have this silly belief that wokeness is just uh, the contemporary expression of cultural Marxism, kind of. When I tell them that, that there's no such thing as cultural Marxism, and it's got nothing to do with that, it actually comes out of the crisis of, of the elites. So they don't believe me. And they say, oh, yeah, we, our institutions are, are strong enough to fight against it. And I remember I was in New York involved in a debate, and I pointed out that if you read the Harvard Business Review or you look at what businessmen say, they sound like sociology professors. They've kind of totally internalized the talk. Then this guy puts up his hand and says, you know, Frank, there are institutions that will hold the line. So I says, which ones? And they said, well, first sports and then the military. And then I said, well, you know, well, you know, you, you know what sport is like now. With the taking of the knee and you know the transgenderist stuff becoming uh, uh, internalized by it, so sports being completely captured by it. But even the military—I mean, I don't know what the Australian military are like—but in England, our military 
uh, come across very often as uh, so social workers in uniform and, and the kind of values that they're being uh, uh, sort of encouraged to accept you know, are, are all the usual ones from diversity to transgenderism, gender neutrality, I and mean, all those things are, are becoming integral to, 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 to the whole way that the military exists. So yes, I, I just see the origins as ultimately being in the crisis of the Western elites and their transformation into, into a, a group that is very different to what uh, the establishment was previously. Frank, all I want the military doing is taking apart their guns, putting them together and running a lot. That's what I want them doing. I don't want them having like tea parties or whatever, all this other stuff. I mean, are you, are we on a unity ticket here? Or? Absolutely. I, I want them to do a lot of press ups. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes. and also to, to, to learn how to shoot a gun. I think that's really quite important. <laughs> I forgot uh, about that. And in particular, I think it's really useful when, um, we see soldiers as having the capacity to, to fight and not to see battles as, as somehow the precursor of, of uh, emotional or mental health problems. So we don't want them to uh, imagine that every time they face a difficult predicament, that somehow they're going to become mental ill as a result of that, which is you know, the way they're being socialized at the moment. Well, you definitely know that uh, woke has, has really infiltrated everywhere when it, when it takes over sport, you know, because that... It's probably the, the, the ultimate meritocracy sport. Um, we're seeing the distinction between public life and private life being eroded now. It seems the most important thing in life is to recognise and celebrate identity over collectivist ideas like community or, or nationhood. Um, and identity is now very political. You, you see this especially in the UK around trans ideology. Uh, has this turn towards identity and politics been a damaging force for political discourse, do you think? Well, it has because it leads to the uh, ghettoization of public life, where people don't talk to each other or argue with each other. Because you see, the thing about identity politics is you cannot argue against it for the very simple reason that for a lot of people, politics is personal. They say the personal is political. So if your politics is personal and I criticize your politics, I'm actually calling you into existence. And a lot, that's why a lot of people who are advocates of identity politics say that cannot be freedom of speech because freedom of speech literally annihilates my identity and my existence. So therefore, it's become a very uh, intolerant, censorious movement that has been given way to. And you're getting to the point now where in public life, an increasing number of people are censoring themselves in order to avoid the hassle of being accused of being transphobic or whatever the latest phobia is in place. And that's going to get worse, by the way. I mean, you have to understand that, that there are identity issues that you haven't even heard about that are going to be even more grotesque than the ones that we've been exposed to. <laughs> I, I pictured Fellini's satiricon or something, just the whole bit. You think you're joking. One of the big issues at the moment is whether or not animals can give consent to human beings having sex with them. And there's a big discussion about the fact that it's wrong to be specious and to see humans as in some shape or form morally different and superior to animals. And that division between animals and human beings is being systematically eroded in universities and by thinkers already. So that's going to be the next frontier. That's going to make the gender neutrality issue look positively benign compared <laughs> to this kind of area that we're moving into. Well, it seems like, you know, the pandemic 
accelerated this sort of woke cultural shift. And now the people who are the most frightened and risk averse and uh, pre-offended seem to be in the driver's seat. Now, these people are also the people who seem to care the most also, which has given them sort of this moral authority to take extraordinary measures to get their ends, whether it's slapping people on a on a stage or 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 shutting burning a business down or who knows what it could be anything right it's it's just a means to an end now our civilization has been built upon risk and uh and people have risked their fortunes their safety and their lives to make extraordinary things happen how do we get the keys back of these bedwetters i think we need to uh, um, engage with young people we need to understand because a lot of young people are still fairly idealistic and we need to encourage their uh capacity for courage and for experimentation, which is part and, par- part and parcel of being young, and to encourage that as much as possible. I think the education, socialization element is really the key battleground. That's why my last book touches on that, because if we allow those people to socialize the young, then we are doomed for a very long time. But if, it, if the younger generation become even more woke than you know, their, 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 the previous ones, there's going to be a lot of problem, but I also think that people like you or you guys and myself have got to have a little bit more courage and not put up with this. You know, a lot of people apologize; they're scared to open their mouths. There's a lot of people out there that don't like what's going on, and they don't have a voice. You know, they don't. You know, they feel disturbed by what's happening. I think our job is to give them a voice to to, to explain to them that there are people out there who think in that kind of way. I had a very interesting experience, which I felt really good about a few weeks ago. I've been doing a few uh, TV programs on this new TV channel in Britain called GB News. Oh, we watch GB News. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that, that went, went quite well. And I was asked to give a talk to the boys at Eton College. I don't know if you know what Eton is. That's like the poshest schools of the ruling class. And one of the reasons I was asked is because I think some of the teachers felt that the headmaster was really very woke and was trying to feminize all the boys, turn them into kind of kind of very girlish in, in, in terms of that attitude. So I arrived at the school and I had to wait for the teacher to, to show me where to go. And this porter comes up to me, you know, there's a couple of porters hanging around there. And one of them says, you're Frank Ferreira. I said, yeah, yeah. I says, I saw you on GB News. And, uh, and, and then the other porters come in and they all say, we, we really like what you said about Brexit. We, we like what you said about this and that. And I thought that was so cool, having you know, the, the, the people that are you know, essentially doing the heavy lifting to keep that school you know, sort of moving along, you know, sort of in the poshest, most elitist kind of environment, you know, sort, of under, you know, sort of feeling that what they heard other people say is what they felt. And it had this kind of effect of making them feel more confident about opening their mouth than was the case beforehand. And that's really what I think we need to find ways and means of doing. Well, moderates and people in the centre or like us or thereabouts, especially millennials, uh, have been quite apolitical in the past. And I think we would have probably been the subject of some of your videos 15 years ago uh, about how disappointing we were. And we were disappointing, Frank. I can tell you, we were, I, I would have watched your videos back then and just gone, what does this guy know about being young and cool? Nothing. Anyway. So anyway, um, we've also prolonged our infancy for a very, very long time talking about Iron Man and Captain America 
and when we were like 38. Now, over the last five years or so, me and my generation have been under the assumption that at some point, the boomers or Gen X or someone would come back into the room and sort of shut down the young extremists that are uh, in all of the institutions and now the corporations. Now, is it up to us, and, I, and I'm trying to implicate my, our listeners in this as well, is it up to us to realise that we, for better or worse, are the adults in the room now and that we must somehow summon the moral courage to fight these battles, even if we lose uh, jobs and friends in the meantime? I think so. I think you, you can never be young enough to join the battle. And I think that the, the boomers have become paralysed from the neck down and they've become brain dead in, in many respects. They've kind of had the good life and uh, they basically don't understand the mess that we're in. They're not responsible for it as it happens, but you know, they should be playing a greater role. I mean, people my age, we live through all this. You know, we got to set an example and we should have, and we can have the courage because we, you know, we've, we've got our reputation. We've, you know, we've had a full life. We had a lot of experiences. We need to uh, transmit that to others. But if we're not doing it, then I think it's people like you and even the younger generations who got to join the battle. And I'm convinced that if people open their mouths a little bit more, then you can really begin to mobilize a lot more people than is the case at the moment. I mean, I, I can give you a lot of examples from my personal experience where you can go into a very difficult you know, sort of uh, meeting where people are very hostile to you to begin with. But you know, with a bit of uh, using a bit of humor and 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 being clear about what you're saying, you can shift the atmosphere. And it's always, always a bit like the um, the little boy and the emperor situation, where the little boy says the emperor is not wearing clothes. And when we basically, you know, sort of call into question the fact that these woke individuals are actually intellectually naked uh, and expose them to other people that you can you know, get a really good result. You're a pro- prolific writer and speaker. A simple search of your name brings a flood of results. I sense an urgency in your work that there is a battle to be won and that we need to act fast. Um, have I read this correctly? What, what are the cultural battles that we need to fight and win? Well, I think the, uh, the biggest immediate cultural battle is to rehabilitate the, the past, the Western past. We have to rehabilitate and uh, in a sense, uh, gain an understanding of, of what the accomplishment of Western civilization was really all about. And instead of being apologetic about it, and instead of seeing that as being on balance, uh, a negative phenomenon, we have, have to have a more bal- you know, balanced view where we, we acknowledge that you know, certain bad things have happened, as is always the case in any historical cycle, but the unbalance, you know, this did the values and the legacy of that culture is essential for us if we're going to go forward because it provides us with the foundation to make our way in the world, with the foundation to take risks and to experiment and to create a better world, to be future oriented and uh, see the future as potentially better than the present. You need to be firmly rooted in the sensibility that humanity has created over the centuries and is given to us. So that's the first battle. Because at the moment, our opponents are desperately trying to detach us from our historical legacy and almost create a year zero situation. And then secondly, you know, once we've done that, we have to realize that we need to be better intellectually and politically than we are at the moment. I think uh, a lot of people on our side are complacent. 
they make jokes about wokeness. They say, ha, 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 look at that, those stupid people. But they are at the same time, have done nothing to develop coherent arguments that could capture the imagination of young people. And uh, that kind of intellectual and political laziness is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for not being able to move things forward. And the final thing that's really important is, as I was alluding to earlier on, we need to capture the imagination of the young. I think we have to you know, sort of uh, not play the part of being old codgers or just somehow being complacent as all those they're just kids. We have got to uh, sort of find a way of, uh, of giving them a, a leadership and inspiration, which at the moment we're not doing satisfactorily. And I think if you can do that, then we have a very good chance of reversing the cultural dynamic that's in place at the moment. Well, just before we say goodbye, Frank, we'd love to know what our guests are reading. So what are you reading right now? What am I reading now? Uh, well, I'm, you don't want to know that because I'm reading this very, very thick book. You know, sort of, it's massively big. It's very big, uh, listeners. Yeah. It's big it's and scary the, looking. The Handbook of Illiberalism. Okay. And I'm reading it because I want to write a book, uh, an article for an uh, academic journal that explains that illiberalism is something that often comes out of liberalism itself. It isn't just simply conservative, conservatives are liberal, they're liberal as well. And I'm trying to, the reason why I'm reading a lot of books about liberalism at the moment is because I'm trying to, uh, explain to people that classical liberalism or enlightenment liberalism has got a lot of values that we need to respect rather than just dismiss uh, which is the case at the moment that's great frank uh where can people follow or, or see your work are you are you on twitter i'm on twitter uh my twitter handle is called furedibyte f-u-r-e-d-i-b-y-t-e and i'm uh, also I've got a website which is just frankfuredi.com uh and uh, i write quite extensively, mainly on Spiked Online, which I quite like. Uh, yeah, and I think people can, if they want to see my books, uh, they can choose between 25 different texts. It's all on Amazon Online as well. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, th thank you for being so generous with your time today, uh, Frank. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it was very nice talking to you guys. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.